Hey everyone, part four. I'm going to dive in with each episode. I'm trying to get started faster than the last one. So here I go. Be cautious of how frequently you speak through jokes and sarcasm. I grew up in a family where it seemed like the only communication that took place at family gatherings was through joking and sarcasm. Everybody and everything became the butt of a joke at one point or another. What was serious and what was not could hardly be deciphered by an outsider. As I grew up and developed more of my own cognitive capacities that differentiated them themselves from those of my family, I started to have some significant challenges with this way of operating as a group. What was real? What was sincere? What was just a joke that could just be shrugged off? Was anything just a joke if others laughed at it? Were the jokes people laughed at only good jokes because they had some deeper truth to them that everyone else was seeing? What does it mean about my relationships with others when they make jokes about me? These questions, and many more, circle through my head time after time. In leaving for a university and spending time away from my family, I realized that the new relationships I started developing weren't so focused on jokes like my relationships with my family were, but rather they were much more sincere, honest, and clear at the base. Conversations I had that were more thoughtful, deep, and based in reality made me feel more connected to others. These more substantially founded connections led me to appreciating humor through jokes and sarcasm more. As the intentions and love were clear from the start before the jokes were made, so the jest was always taken in good spirit. With my family, I struggled to get the relationship foundations I wanted built because my defaults for building relationships were simply different from most of the others around me, which made all the jokes and sarcasm hard to grasp and understand. Without the well-established relationships, the jokes and sarcasm weren't adding to anything of substance, and they were the only dimension of the relationship. So what does this all mean? Jokes and sarcasm can be lighthearted tools to add a new dimension to well-founded relationships that have roots in trust and good intentions, but they are not sufficient to stand alone by themselves at the base of a relationship. Can pedagogy learn from studying the activities people spend most of their free time doing? School was likely a boring and disengaging experience for many of us. If not in every way, then certainly in many or some. This has been the case for decades, and it remains seemingly unchanged at a systemic level, especially at the middle school and high school levels. It doesn't seem to be the student's problem, though, as they are clearly engaged in plenty of other areas of their lives whether it be their engagement in activities outside of school, like sports, or with social media and gaming platforms on smartphones and screens. What is present in those experiences that are not present in school? How could those factors present in the outside activities I mentioned be incorporated into school to make it more engaging? I'm well aware this would require a major change in pedagogy and curriculum, but it seems to be needed, as the structures of education seem to differ more and more from the structures that support the activities in which young people are most engaged, which means students will, conti will continue to be less and less engaged inside of their current structures of education. Can we do better to gamify learning and intrigue students? Can we individualize education more to better connect with students' interests and personal lives? Can learning be adapted into a series of small, engaging pieces of content that flow together with humor, suspense, and narrative to hook, to hook students? As I write this, there are contrasting thoughts in my mind. Is student engagement only bound to worsen because of their engagement with platforms that pull them in through very short, intense, and extreme pieces of content which shorten their attention spans and, complete, and compete with their mindfulness and focus? 
Does that form of content have less potential to educate students in a meaningful and nuanced way? These are all really big questions, which I would like to return to, as digging into this now would fill the rest of this page and then some. Be gracious. It takes time to retrain our reactions and processes. Nearly everything we are has been constructed through a long process of training and reinforcement that we weren't conscious of as it all happened. Living in my family's house with Gabby and vice versa has made this very clear. We take up so many behaviors from our parents and the other influential people in our lives. Even the smallest of things, such as the way we wash dishes, the way we eat, how we clean the floors, the faces we make in certain situations. So much is transferred that we don't realize until someone points it out. When we want to retrain some behaviors as we grow older into adulthood, the journey is inevitably a long one because the time it took to build the behavior to what it is when we decide to change it is a lifetime in most cases. This means that we will fail over and over again as we try to reshape ourselves into something that we haven't been through our entire lives beforehand. This is not an easy feat, even for what we might deem to be a small change. So as we all make these attempts, having grace is critical to providing adequate support. We are not perfect, and thus the process to change will not be. Try, fail, reflect on the failure, then do it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again. That's what it takes to transform. Whether you or someone else is in this process, acknowledge it and give the grace that you'd like to receive from others. If you want to be an even better supporter, go beyond your view and give them the grace that they would like to receive. Strictly plan your days off, even more than your work days. My most challenging days are not the weekdays, oddly enough. Given I'm a very conscientious person, my work schedule provides me with some structures and transitions that make my day fairly seamless. I wake up, poop and do some reading, get myself together, meditate, work, have lunch, work some more, finish work, go to the gym, have dinner and a protein shake, relax and have open time for pending tasks, get ready for bed, write in my journal, and then sleep. It's a pretty effective routine for me that does me well. My weekends do not share the structure, as I have no clear eight-hour activity to do in the middle of the day to split my morning and evening. This makes it much less predictable, which can lead me to being less present and productive. Key solution to this that has worked for me is the following set of principles that fits under this label of quote unquote, strictly plan your days off. First, wake up around the same time that you wake up each day during the week. This helps to maintain your circadian rhythm, which then makes you more energized during the week. Two, start your day the same way. For me, it's pooping and reading, getting myself ready, and then meditating. Three, plan your day clearly with a list of what you want to do and identify the best order of events. If your mind works better in the morning, then put the more challenging mental tasks to do in the morning. If you're more sharp in the evening, then allow the morning to be a more relaxed period before you ramp up to do your key tasks in the evening. Four, identify the key transition points. The day is not one long chunk. Create blocks of time in which you will operate. For me, the key transition points start with my morning routine, then lunch, then exercise and dinner, and then sleep. This translates to three windows of the day, morning, afternoon, evening. In my case, the morning is about four hours, eight to 12. The afternoon is three hours, about one to four. And the evening is three hours, 
6.30 to 9.30. The amount of time in each window can vary, and I do sometimes push into the gaps because I get into a flow or I need to adjust to unexpected events happening. But the general structure of transition points provides helpful respite in between cycles. Lastly, find a mutual confidant. Living with certain thoughts and experiences that have not seen the light of another human lens can be torturous, as it leaves us alone and often unsettled. Many of these personal experiences and thoughts are too emotional and intense for us to properly sort out inside of our own minds. They often require distance and fresh eyes to combine with the intensity of the experience that we hold inside. The act of sharing in this way also allows us to no longer be held captive and trapped. The weight of these thoughts and experiences is frequently very inhibiting, which makes releasing it out of ourselves such a relief. Connecting with people who enjoy listening because of the relationship that it builds between you and who willingly share their own personal experiences and thoughts is invaluable. I'm extremely fortunate to have multiple people in my life in whom I can confide all of my most personal experiences and thoughts. Gabby is an obvious one, along with other closer friends of mine. These relationships merit immense care and investment, as they are the source through which many of our most inner challenges can be resolved. There's a valid counter-argument to this point, which is strategy. Some will say that if you reveal all of your cards and share your deepest vulnerabilities, then others can exploit you and make you suffer. Despite my acknowledgement of how this can definitely happen, I think it is a losing strategy in the long run in most cases. First, very few of us, and I would argue none of us, have all the resources necessary inside of ourselves to make sense of the incredibly deep and complicated structures of who we are and why we are the way that we are. Then on top of that, you need to know how to independently resolve all of it for it to no longer be a vulnerability. Second, most people are good people who want to build trusting relationships with good intentions. Despite the presence of Machiavellians, psychopaths, sociopaths, and hucksters in the gender population, they are not the majority, but rather a small minority. If we are mindful, we can also see the patterns of these types of people upon observing their speech and behavior. I'll pause there. This is the fourth out of five episodes in which I'll read through my quarter for learnings. Check it out, mapbest.net slash the platform. It'll be the first one at the top if you're listening to this within the three months that I recorded it. So thank you for listening, and I hope that you're finding a lot of value in this. This process is always so helpful for me, so I hope that me sharing it can be helpful for you as well. As always, much, much love, and I'll be back soon. Cheers.